welcome to the Artist's Creed. I'm Steve Guthrie, Professor of Theology and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. The Artist's Creed is a conversation about Christianity, creativity, and the arts. And the venue we've chosen for that conversation is the Apostles' Creed, an expression of the Christian faith with roots in the worship and proclamation of the early church. sometimes make a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is thought to be how God has made himself known through the natural world, for instance. So we look at the stars, at the mountains, at the wonder of our own bodies, and we understand something about God. And then special revelation is thought to be the incarnation of the word in the person of Jesus or the scriptures, places where God tells us very directly what we could not know simply by looking at the world around us. In his Dogmatics in Outline, however, Karl Barth says, we are not nearer to believing in God the Creator than we are to believing that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It is not the case that the truth about God the Creator is directly accessible to us, and that only the truth of the second article, that is, the truth about Jesus, needs a revelation. So part of what Bart is saying is that seeing the world as creation is to see it through the eyes of faith. It's because God has been revealed to us as creator that we're able to see this world around us, not just as physical stuff, but as creation. The lens of faith enables us to see the same world differently and to engage with it differently. The same stars, the same mountains have a different meaning depending on the lens through which we view them. In this episode, I'm talking with fantasy author Helena Sorensen. Helena is the author of, among other things, the Shiloh Trilogy. And we talk about what business a nice Christian author like Helena has writing fantasy. Why, for instance, if God has created this world, should we go about creating other ones? Helena talks about the ways in which fantasy allows us to escape into reality to see the same thing differently. Fantasy, she suggests, helps us imagine the possibility of a broader reality, one which includes both what we can see and what we cannot. Helena begins our conversation by reading a passage that she loves from Ursula Le Guin's book, The Tombs of Atuan. The scene she shares is actually really helpful in thinking about faith, fantasy, and seeing the world as creation. It helps us to think about the possibility of encountering the same reality in very different ways through different modes of perception. You mentioned uh, the Ursula Le Guin book, uh, Tombs of Atuan, Mm -hmm. um, which again, when when you mentioned that, I thought that was so fun because I, I read the first three books in that series, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago, mm-hmm. and then maybe just... A month ago, I um, went back to, and finished it off, listened to uh, Tahanu, which yes. is the fourth book right. in the series, and, and loved it. I just finished it last week. But when we corresponded, and you mentioned the tombs of Atuan, I was about halfway through uh, <laughs> Tahanu. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. obviously the hand of God. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd like to talk a bit about 
um, the Le Guin book as well. But as I was looking at your website, I, I noticed that um, themes of was it okay to look at your website? <laughs> you looked alarmed. It's, when I it's malnourished. How's uh, that? No, okay. Uh, when I was talking with a friend, they mentioned <laughs> that the themes of light and darkness are pretty central to your Shiloh trilogy. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yes. So uh, the trilogy begins in a land of perpetual shadow. Yes. Yeah. And um, in the third book, there is a kind of battle or a conflict between the bright immortals and the dark immortals. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And then the second book, um, I thought this was interesting, introduces us to a woman who has visions of light, but whose visions are called madness yes. by the people around her. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yes. That so light and darkness are such archetypal themes sure. or such archetypal images or whatever that you'd think it'd be pretty self-evident that light is light and dark is dark. But that's right. that's maybe kind of one thing. It sounds like you're you're exploring in that second book. Yes. Is that is that right? Yes, it's true. Um, and especially the idea that um, that light is connected to hope. Um, and so for, I think for us, we live in darkness in many ways, mm. but it's what we're accustomed to seeing. And so we wouldn't necessarily even name it that. Yeah. Um, and so the longer we move on in that world with uh, an inability to see past it or to see that there's anything else, the more we steel ourselves against the the opportunity to hope or the possibility of hope. Yeah. And so when someone enters our world with a different perspective or says there's more, there's something else, mm. um, most people, I think, tend to react to that negatively. They tend to push back from yeah. that and say, you're you're crazy. Yeah. Um, you might call it childish. I mean, I've heard right. people say that about fantasy novels, that this is childish, it's escapism. There's nothing... Right there's nothing really real and substantive about this kind of story. Yeah. And I think that's profoundly untrue and right. very sad. Yeah. You, you sent me an essay on that you wrote on doubt, which I really enjoyed reading and Thank was you. really helpful. But one of the things um, that you mentioned is that stories are one opportunity for us to engage with a, a different kind of reality or to see things in a dramatically different way. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, and I feel very strongly about that, um, <laughs> obviously, <Yeah. laughs> considering what I do. Yeah. Um, but I I think, uh, you know, the verse about creation longing for mm. the sons of God to be revealed, um, I will never be able to tell you what that passage is right now, but all mm. creation groans, it groans, waiting. Yeah. Um, and I think if there's a sense that something hasn't been revealed, right, if it's not been revealed yet, then something is hidden, something is hidden here. Um, and I think that worldwide, everyone, we feel that longing for there to be something more, something hidden uh, mm. behind the obvious reality. Um, you see it in Harry Potter. It's so obvious and simple, but but why would people be so swept away by this story? Mm. Um, and, and some people might dismiss it and call it childish, like I said before, but um, I think everyone is just aching to find that behind that brick wall, if they just push in a little, there's a world where magic is real. Yeah. And that's people of every age. And, and you could take someone who is the most um, most opposed to the idea of the supernatural or to anything spiritual, yeah. and they still have this longing for um, a job, for a marriage, for children, yeah. for this place they want to retire, for travel. And all of that, I think, is just sort of um, maybe thin little shadows of the desire for another world, that longing mm. for something more than we can see. Yeah. Um, 
And in stories, we get this idea that, that it's, we have permission. We get permission to say, oh, I do long for something more. I'm aching to go behind the door into Narnia. I'm yeah. aching to step into Middle Earth, to step into something that's just brighter, clearer, somewhere where the lines are drawn in a way yeah. that I can see them. Um, that's really interesting. And, the, and you, you took that in a different direction, a way that I was thinking at first, that there is, um, well, I, I guess there are both sides there. Um that when you're talking about things being hidden, mm. you know, that thinking we long for things to be revealed. Mm. But part of what you're saying, too, is that we long for there to be a hiddenness. Yes, yeah? that's right? true. Right. So we, we long for to discover that what we see isn't all there is. Yes. Yeah. Deeply. Um, so that there are things that are hidden. There are things to be discovered. Um so if we're longing for things to be hidden, is there joy still when they're discovered? Or do we always, does there always need to be a hiddenness? Do you know what well, I'm saying? that's a good question. I mean, you could um, argue about what the nature of eternity will be and what we'll be yeah. doing in the afterlife. But um, yes, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes God so delightful because mm. he longs to reveal himself and he is revealing himself. Yeah. Um, but because he's infinite, he can never be completely revealed. Yeah. Um, and I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's really that's really good because um, oh, that, that was another thing that I liked about your doubt essay is it I thought it situated doubt in an interesting place mm. where you say on the one hand, doubt isn't something to be afraid of right. or something to be avoided. Right. But then neither is doubt something to be sort of um, aimed for it's not it's not our goal it's right. not our destination we don't want to live there yes i think um and i think even amongst my students there's a struggle to kind of find that middle mm. ground mm -hmm. that maybe they grow up thinking you can never ask questions right and then they think that maybe maturity is well there are no answers there are only questions right. yes richard Rohr um says that mystery is not that which is unknowable, but that which is infinitely knowable, mm, which I really beautiful. like. Yeah. Um, so the idea that, you know, recognizing um, the place of mystery or ambiguity mm. or doubt in our, our faith isn't saying, isn't kind of consigning ourselves to eternal unknowingness. Right. But saying, yeah, there's always more to yes. be discovered. There's always another door to go behind. Yes, oh, I love that. that. I love that. Yeah. And I I, um, I, don't like the idea that eternity, well, eternity is maybe a place more than anything else. Yeah. It's where God is, right? Where yeah. God dwells. Um, and so we, we tend to be stuck with that idea of up, right? Heaven is up. Right, right. God is up. Eternity is up. And um, I just finished reading a book where um, – Again, it was a fantasy novel. That's not all I read, but I, I particularly <laughs> love them, right? Sure. Um, and and one of the illustrations there, we have creatures moving between worlds in this story. Yeah. And the way they describe it is um, we would be a, a tiny speck uh, on one single page of a huge book. Mm. And you can move it just in, in an impossibly you can move in an infinite distance along this one page if you stay on that plane, right? Yeah, you can yeah. just keep going and going and going and going. Yeah. But what if you could pierce through yeah. to the next page? Um, and of course, that's how she builds her worlds, this particular author. <laughs> her worlds are like pages of a book, all just, just lying, pressed together. Yeah. But I think that's eternity. It's, uh, it's not up. It's not then. Yeah. It's right here. And, and, and stories and faith can shift your perspective the width of a single page. And that's enough to, 
to give you a glimpse of a totally different dimension and a different world. Hmm. I think that's the presence of God. I think that's the all of that is right here, just yeah. one <laughs> millimeter <laughs> right. away, you know? I wonder if maybe we could read that passage from The Tombs of Atuan. Yes. So this um, particular novel, The Tombs of Atuan, is... Um, it's about a woman who's chosen as a priestess to mm-hmm. some very ancient gods that are called the Nameless Ones. And she's taken as a child. I mean, there are signs that show that she's the one. So she's taken and she spent her entire life training in the, their rites, the sacred rites. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the central uh, tasks that she has to do is to move in a, an underground passage that includes sort of a sacred chamber, which would be, I guess, their their place of worship or presence, like an altar mm-hmm. to their gods, and then a, um, a maze that connects um, to that. And so she has actually grown up pacing the passages underground with no light because it is absolutely forbidden to take light into this place. Mm-hmm. The dwelling place of the dark gods is in darkness. Um, and so one day she's down and she's moving through the, the tombs. It's her, her job to know the darkness, to move in the darkness with confidence. Um, and she begins to see something that surprises her. So this passage, let's see here. She thought her eyes were tricking her, as they often did in that utter blackness. She closed them, and the glimmering vanished. She opened them, and it reappeared. She had stopped and was standing still. Gray, not black. A dull edge of pallor just visible, where nothing could be visible, where all must be black. She took a few steps forward and put out her hand to that angle of the tunnel wall, and infinitely faint, saw the movement of her hand. She went on. This was strange beyond thought, beyond fear, this faint blooming of light where no light had ever been, in the inmost grave of darkness. She went noiseless, on bare feet, black-clothed. At the last turn of the corridor, she halted, then very slowly took the last step and looked and saw. Saw what she had never seen, not though she had lived a hundred lives. The great vaulted cavern beneath the tombstones, not hollowed by man's hand, but by the powers of the earth. It was jeweled with crystals, and ornamented with pinnacles and filigrees of white limestone where the waters under earth had worked eons since. Immense, with glittering roof and walls, sparkling, delicate, intricate, a palace of diamonds, a house of amethyst and crystal from which the ancient darkness had been driven out by glory. Not bright, but dazzling to the dark accustomed eye, was the light that worked this wonder. It was a soft gleam like marsh light that moved slowly across the cavern, striking a thousand scintillations from the jeweled roof and shifting a thousand fantastic shadows along the carven walls. The light burned at the end of a staff of wood, smokeless, unconsuming. The staff was held by a human hand. Ara saw the face beside the light, the dark face, the face of a man. She did not move. So she pauses for a few moments to watch him move across the cavern, mm-hmm. and it takes a little while um, for her shock to move into anger, to fury, because mm. this man, by bringing light into the tomb, has desecrated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she calls him an infidel in her mind, and she's filled mm-hmm. with rage. And so she's waiting for the gods to kind of avenge themselves on him. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't happen, she screams out for him to be gone. She says, um, go, go, be gone. She screamed all at once at the top of her voice. Great echoes shrilled and boomed across the cavern, seeming to blur the dark. Um the dark, startled face, excuse me, that turned towards her, and for one moment across the shaken splendor splendor of the cavern, saw her. Then the light was gone, all splendor gone, blind dark and silence. Now she could think again. She was released from the spell of light. So can you say a little bit about what, what you like about that passage, what you find 
interesting or compelling about that? Yes. I, I mean, I, it parallels very nicely with my stories. Um, mm. um, and particularly from the perspective that w- we are accustomed to the darkness. The mm. darkness feels like home, just as you said. Yeah. Um, so this woman who has been put in bondage all her life, I mean, she wouldn't call it that because they would yeah. say it's an honor to be chosen. And, and this right. is the the weight of the task that comes with your chosenness. Um, but especially that this was only darkness. She, there, there, there was an emptiness there that she had become familiar with, a hole. And when light enters, she finds that it's a cavern full of diamonds. I mean, it's, it's, it's the walls covered mm. with crystals and so much beauty. Um, and her reaction to that is violent. And, and yet, and yet something gets through to her because later on in the story, we see her have a change of heart yeah. about this man and about what these gods are and whether or not they are to be worshipped. Um, but I, I love that bringing light in, that image of showing something. And, and it's just maybe sometimes a, a twinkle, a glimmer of light on the edge of vision. But, but it feels like hope. And yeah. for her, I think it's just the beginning of a, a really beautiful transformation. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that she can't think again. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Until it gets dark, that, that she's only allowed to return to her former way of thinking and, and plan and, and do all these things that um, she would do as the priestess of the dark ones um, yeah. when the darkness returns. Because, as you said, the light is so unsettling. It shakes her out of something that she's been in for ages. Yeah, that's yeah. That is really interesting. So it's it's as if light and darkness are these kinds of environments which yes. make possible a particular kind of thinking. Yes. Yeah, and so there's a way of making sense out of reality, a way of engaging with her world mm-hmm. in the darkness. Right. That's all touch and memory mm-hmm. and feel. Right. Um, and, and also so, fear. Yeah, and fear. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, and so you think again that. Um, you know, bringing light into that would just be wonderful and opportunity, mm-hmm. but it it means engaging with the world in a whole different way. Yes, yeah, um, which is interesting too. I mean, it, it um, suggests that stories can be not just kind of comforting, but frightening. That yes. they can be unsettling. That they yes. can provoke um, a violent reaction. Isn't it Kafka who said that the book should be an axe for the frozen sea inside us? Yes, it was Kafka who said that. Uh, let me see. I, I call up the page number. Um, <laughs> I, I love those kinds of... Wasn't it so-and-so who said... <laughs> when, I don't have many of those in my pocket, so... <laughs> now, if you're an academic, you learn to always say, mm, mm. Of course I knew yeah, that, and you, I've thought on it deeply. Yes, you nod sagaciously. No, I have, I have no idea. But I'm sorry, Re- Repeat the Kafka Sorry, quote. I was, okay. I was just dwelling on my own ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I do that as well. Um, um, but uh, and I, it's a translation from Russian, right? Okay. So I've seen it. Uh, so please, please say it in out. the original Russian for us. <laughs> Possibly begin to. Um, but uh, I think that the sense of it is a book should be an axe for the frozen sea inside us. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So I mean, can you think of any instances where reading a book? has done that for you? I mean, when a book or a story Mm. has challenged your way of seeing things or a story that's um, made you look at the world differently? Well, it happens all the time, actually. Yes. Um, And especially in fantasy. I need to stop saying that word. I'm so sorry, but I I love the genre so much when it's done well. Um, I talk in that essay on doubt about another book series that is um, in not really fantasy. It's um, 
uh, I don't know exactly how, what you would call it. It's somewhere between historical fiction and fantasy, I think. Uh, but it's the Queen's Thief series. And I, yeah. I feel like God, kn- he knows my love language. He knows yeah. the way I see and understand things. And yeah. so he is always speaking to me through those stories because hmm. they feel very accessible to me. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like he's peeking out through characters in the stories all hmm. the time and showing himself. Um and so there, there's a character in that story. The whole series is really built around him. And he's incorrigible and um, changeable. He lies. <laughs> Obviously, mm. that's not a great picture of God. But, but, but yet, um, he is working behind the scenes always in, mm. in ways that shock the characters, in ways that you can't be prepared for. The, in these, these endings that turn out so beautiful, so brilliantly, huh. that you could not have foreseen it. And so all the, the anxiety you've carried with you through the story yeah. is redeemed so powerfully. Yeah. Um, those have shaken me many times yeah. um, back into the hope and trust that God is sovereign, that there, th- this might end better than I ever hoped it would. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that say, the gospel? <laughs> yeah. And when you say that, I mean, uh, I noticed that when you um, mentioned that in your essay on doubt, that, you know, as you're reading the stories the first time, you're yes. nervous, like, is oh my goodness, this story is going in a it's direction yes. that I really don't like. And then, and maybe that's part of the power of the story, right? Is that it doesn't just present us with a set of ideas, but it engages us affectively in yes. in those ideas. And it, it carries us along, uh, you know, a line of narrative development rather than just kind of giving it to us at once. It sort of brings us yes. uh, through a process. Yes. Yeah. Um, I heard John Hodges speak on that topic uh, mm. at Hutchmoot. Yeah whenever that was. Yeah. Um, but he was talking about uh, patience, the need for patience um, hmm. in in discovering God and discovering art, what we need to discover in art. But he said that the great artists and God too knows how long it takes us, how long we need to sit in the waiting before the resolution comes. Hmm. And so he used um, a section from Brahms' Requiem um, where the, the singers sit with a man as... Um, you know, he has the grass and, and he withers and fades and, yeah. and and they just keep repeating this line and repeating this line, repeating this line to the yeah. point where you think, are we ever going to get anywhere? And it's right. it's very low. It's in a minor key. And then uh-huh. all of a sudden, just like a glorious sunrise, the chorus bursts out in major, yeah. um, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. I mean, huh. it's just, he lets you sit in that waiting for a long time. And great yeah. writers do the same. Yeah. They let you sit in the discomfort long enough that you feel it. It sinks in. Um mm. And so then the turnaround at the end is that much more beautiful. That's interesting. Um, I was interviewing um, someone earlier for this podcast um, talking about George MacDonald. Mm. And she sent me a a couple of essays she had written on George MacDonald. And um, one of them was talking about how a lot of contemporary readers find MacDonald frustrating. (laughs) Yes. Because he he doesn't give up the goods quickly enough sure and she was saying yeah that um when mcdonald was writing you know a, a book was harder to come by mm. and you didn't want a book that kind of you know you you could kind of blaze through it yes in three hours yes. and then you're done with it it doesn't give anything more right but there was some value in a book that you had to sit with and work at and return to yes and um i wonder i mean i'm I'm not an author of fiction myself, but if there's something to that, if um, part of the role of an author is not only satisfying, but um, frustrating the reader, you know, uh, 
saying, I'm, I'm not going to give you what you want yet, or it's right. not going to work out yet, or maybe it's not going to work out at all. You know? Well, it's, that's a real difficult sell <laughs> yeah. for readers, because if they're not hooked in the first three lines, you know, yeah. you probably won't sell a lot of books. But I agree with you. I, I enjoy, and Ursula Le Guin is a great example, she's not going to give you anything you know, yeah. that, to help you out. You are, you're in, and hmm. you're invested. And I like having to work for it a bit, because it, yeah. it feels rewarding. There's a sense, too, of um, almost feeling initiated into yeah. the world because yeah. you've you've invested the time and the focus yeah. um, without being kind of shuffled along through it, you know? Right, right. Well, there, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, oh, it's Calvin Seerveld. Okay. Um, who's a Christian philosopher who's written a lot on philosophy of the arts, and he says that the, the basic character of all arts is allusivity, you know, so kind of gesturing towards something without just kind of giving it, um, you know, that, and, and the idea is that all the arts, um, if they work, they invite the participation of the reader, of the viewer, of mm. the listener, mm -hmm. you know, so that a poem, for instance, that's a, a good poem, it doesn't do all the work for you, but you right. have to unpack it. Yes. And and the point isn't just that, oh, well, then I feel a lot smarter because look at me, I unpacked right. it. But that now you're part of a conversation. Yes. You know, you're, you're engaged in a dialogue. You've, rather than just being told something, right. you know, you've been invited into an, an interaction, an, well, you're, an act of communication. You're equals yeah. and now instead of yeah. someone just speaking down to you. Yeah. Which is yeah. beautiful. Yeah, that's really good. Um, You've mentioned twice now that how much you love uh, fantasy, and um, <laughs> you you quote Heidi Johnson in um, the essay that you sent me. Um, I loved this quote: "Fantasy is not an escape from reality, but an escape into reality." So I was interested in that. Um, also, you know, it occurred to me that there are um, some people who would find it ironic that. Um, that you as a writer of fantasy are talking about seeing the world more truly. And might say, well, <laughs> come on. I mean, isn't that, doesn't fantasy set out to do just the opposite, right? Not see the world more truly, mm. but present a world other than the one that we live in. So uh, I'd be interested, you know, why, why do you love fantasy so much? And, and is it the case, as Johnson says, you know, does fantasy help us escape into reality? Mm. How, how does that work? Um, I think I need to give you a caveat there. Someone else told me that she might have been quoting someone else. <laughs> okay. But I'm not sure how Perhaps far Kafka. back that <laughs> in, 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 in Russian. But, uh, obvious. Yeah. Mm, so it was lost mm. in translation is what happened. Um, um, I do agree. There is an irony there. And I think maybe if I was coming from a different worldview, mm. I might have uh, more trouble arguing that point. Um, mm. If the world is only what we see and mm. what we can prove by scientific experiment and observation and mm -hmm. such, um, then yes, fantasy novels are nothing more than escape, a, a way to um, lay aside our stress and our current obvious troubles yeah. <laughs> and just be somewhere else for a while. Yeah. Um, but because I believe we live in two worlds, mm. um, I think that fantasy is... Mm. Um, and that's the opposite of what the life of faith is meant to be. Mm. Um, so specifically in fantasy, and yeah. especially I think for those of us believers who have been so 
uh, steeped in scripture, which is not a bad thing at all. Yeah. But a lot of things have become white noise to us. We just mm-hmm. we just can't receive them because they've been kind of beaten to death, and maybe in just in one particular way, to one particular interpretation. Um, and so, in a fantasy story, all the rules, as we know them, are removed and mm. rewritten. And that alone opens us up to the possibility that things could be reinterpreted, things could be different, there could be more. Mm. Um, I like that. I like that feeling of entering a world where someone else has made the rules. And yeah. I'm free to lay aside what I've always thought about yeah. men and women's role, leave what it is they want me to. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and that, um, so that we can see the same we're talking yes. about, um, you know, so... Uh, Aha, Arhas, Arhas um, yes. from the tombs of Atuan, that she uh, experiences the same space in two radically different ways, yes. right? Within two different contexts of knowing, one lighted and one darkened. Yes. Yeah. So that the the uh, the world of fantasy maybe says to us, you can look at the same thing differently. Yes. Yeah. You can. One page over. Yeah. And I like maybe the idea of the two worlds maybe as being two two stories, you know, mm, like yes. two two complete narratives. Um so that it's not just that we're trying to see the unseen world instead of seeing the seen world. Right. But if we if we say, No, we're in this different story that includes things that we can't see, it also changes how we see the seen world. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think that um we are not meant to deny, to, to live in denial of the seen world, our physical yeah. uh, existence, the things that we suffer, uh, yeah. pain in our bodies, you know, um, hardships financially, right. loss of loved ones, relationship conflicts, all those things are real. And I don't think that we're meant to sweep those aside um, and live stoically, maybe, yeah. in this Or kind I, of a, a Buddhist, you know, sure. kind of suffering is illusion, or, right. or it's Platonism, not. That, that this kind of, this material world is is something we need to be set free from. That, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, and so I think that both worlds are equally important and valid in our experience now. However, mm-hmm. when the question comes to um, what we're going to believe about the nature of God and the universe, or when it comes to how we're going to act, we have to decide which one is more weighty and more lasting. Yeah. There's one direction we'll have to lean yeah. Right. Or we'll have to, you know, move toward, shift our perspective toward. Yeah. Um, many times we have to make that decision. You know. Yeah. That's really. It's interesting when you're talking about there are Christians who want to kind of prove the unseen world on the basis of what they can see. It was mm-hmm. it, reminding me of um, one of the books we read in my my intro to Christian doctrine class is a book by Karl Barth called Dogmatics and Outline, mm-hmm. and Karl Barth. Um, was famously not very interested in doing apologetics mm. or offering proofs for God's right. existence. Um, and part of the reason was, you know, um, he wanted to say that kind of the the bottom line for me, that which I have faith in, mm. is the word is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Yeah. So if you say to me, I'll believe in Jesus if you can prove him to me historically, right. I'll believe in Jesus if you can come up with a logical argument that demonstrates it, then what you're saying is you have some other bottom line, right? Yes, That right. the bottom line is what's really real is what's historically verifiable. Yes. Or what's really real is what's logically verifiable. Mm-hmm. And so if I 
if I prove Jesus to you historically, then the game is up. Yes. Even if I convince you, yes. then we've still said that, that the most real reality is what can be demonstrated historically or Absolutely. whatever. And so Bart says, I'm not, I'm not going to play that game. Yes. You know? And I think reason... Yeah. A gift of God. I think it's a bit overrated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of experiencing God. Sure. Um, yeah. And that's one place where I think stories, um, fantasy stories particularly, yeah. allow us. We already know we're going to have to lay that aside. There's nothing yeah. reasonable about you know blue people or right. whatever it is, yeah. fawns yeah. and satyrs. Right. None of that is reasonable. But if I know I can set that aside for now to enter into this story, yeah. then I'm so much more open to receive things. Um, through the heart, through the imagination, yeah, through yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever avenue um, I need to experience God. And, and I, th- I yeah. think he loves that. I think you're, I mean, when right. we say reason, right. um, all that to say that I think we can take issue mm. with modern Western accounts of rationality mm. without embracing irrationality. We just say that I, maybe this picture of rationality is too narrow mm, you know yeah, it's not broad enough because it goes back to what you were saying about mystery um i would be very disappointed mm. i think to find that i had um absolutely and completely understood god like i've got him yeah wrap it up in a <laughs> right. bow we're done i mean right. how desolate yeah. would that be right. if there was no more to learn and understand right yeah this is all there is right this is all yeah that's yeah. hopelessness well it's interesting too um thinking about that in connection with stories um, I was thinking about that the other day, actually, when I when I finished the Ursula Le Guin book, and sure. was just so disappointed mm-hmm. and thought um, that maybe that's kind of something like what um, what heaven will be like—a completion in which there isn't a last page, oh. you know. Um, because there is that wonderful, you do want to get to the end of the story when you're reading a book. Yes. But then when you've gotten to the end of the story, <laughs> you just devastated. feel desolate. You think, oh no, you know, now on tomorrow's How's that drive. For irrational. Right, yeah. Tomorrow's drive home, there's nothing to listen to. And <laughs> right. there are all these friends I got to know, and now they're gone. Yes. Um, so what if they're, but then you wouldn't want to say either that I never want the story to end, because you do want to know the mm-hmm. ending. What if there were a way for the story to be completed but never finished, you know, to be completed but um, never cease to continue being the story, you know? It's like endless spinoffs. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Stories. Um, I was going to ask you as well. Um, I asked you before if there is a story, if there are stories you've read that have um, caused you to see things differently. And mm. I just wonder if, as a writer, are there stories you've written that have caused you to see things differently um, or, you know, have kind of startled you that, you know, you've seen the world in a different way because mm. of something you've written mm. as opposed to something you've read? I think I can aspire to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I would love for that to be true. I will say this, that I, um, my books are dark, Mm. My fiction is dark, and I, I say that, you know, preemptively yeah. when people ask me about them because I want to warn them. But they're very hopeful, and I think um, for myself, I'm very much an observer. If you're mm. an Enneagram person, I'm a five on the Enneagram, so okay. I'm I'm just kind of watching. Mm. Um, and often what I see is very dark, and um, 
Mm. You know, stories in my past, what I've seen in family mm. situations in the church, in the culture, I see a lot of darkness. Mm. Um, but when I write, I really drop down into that four side, that emotional side. Mm. And so my my feelings in response to what I see, just they join up there mm. with my observations. That's interesting. And so I find that in my writing, I'm very honest Mm-hmm. And which is why my stories are dark, but I'm also the most hopeful. Mm. So I think sometimes maybe my hope surprises me or yeah. it's something that I needed, yeah. you know, to echo back to myself that I'm going to look at the darkness honestly and, and name it. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of that, I mean, it makes me think of the scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings when the, uh, the Rohirrim ride up and they see the hordes of, of um, orcs and trolls and all these other creatures of darkness uh, attacking the walls of the white city hmm. and their king says forth now and fear no darkness that's his line that makes me cry every time mm. because you're looking at it it's right in front of you it's it's a, a massive unbeatable army mm-hmm. run right into it and don't be afraid mm. um <clears throat> i think my stories are me telling myself that here's how bad it is don't be afraid In this episode, we've drawn some connections to the doctrine of creation and the idea of God as creator. And so again, I'll read a little excerpt from chapter 8 in Barth's Dogmatics in Outline, where he talks about God the creator. And this is beginning on page 50. The first article of faith in God the Father and his work is not a sort of forecourt of the Gentiles, a realm in which Christians and Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers are beside one another and to some extent stand together in the presence of a reality concerning which there might be some measure of agreement in describing it as the work of God the Creator. What the meaning of God the Creator is and what is involved in the work of creation is in itself not less hidden from us men than everything else that is contained in the Confession. We are not nearer to believing in God the Creator than we are to believing that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It is not the case that the truth about God the Creator is directly accessible to us and that only the truth of the second article needs a revelation. But in the same sense, in both cases, we are faced with the mystery of God and His work and the approach to it can only be one and the same. The Artist's Creed is hosted by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network in cooperation with the College of Theology and Christian Ministry at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Belmont University is a student-centered Christian community providing an academically challenging education that empowers men and women of diverse backgrounds to engage and transform the world with disciplined intelligence, compassion, courage, and faith. Belmont offers dozens of engaging and innovative programs, including a major in religion and the arts. Find out more at belmont.edu theology. Significant support, including generous access to recording facilities, has also been provided by Lipscomb University. Learn more at lipscomb.edu. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. 
To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.